0: This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. So welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. I appreciate everyone being here. And we're going to jump right in today because we've got a great guest. I think someone who's got a lot to say, someone whose work many of you are going to be familiar with. And if not you will be uh, very cognizant of it after today. So my guest is Michael Rechtenwald. And Michael is an author of many books, I think 11 or 12 by now. He's also a frequent contributor to Mises and other websites, writes op-eds and opinion pieces all over. You've seen Michael Rechtenwald, Dr. Rechtenwald on Tucker Carlson. You've seen him on Fox News, cable TV, all over the place. And also, he used to be a professor at NYU, and I believe um, Dr. Reckenwald was a professor of liberal studies and some other topics at NYU. He was the notorious anti-PC NYU prof on Twitter, and it looks like he might he might still be banned. I'm not sure we could discuss that. But at any rate, he's a man that wears many hats, um, has a lot of interesting things to say, and I'm really glad to have him on the podcast here today. So Thank you very much, Michael, and I appreciate you being here on California Liberty Project.
1: It's great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. So as I kind of mentioned, um, or at least alluded to, much of your work has been focused on anti-political correctness or the deleterious effects of political correctness in society and in academia, and also kind of the totalitarian nature Of the social justice left, and you've had a really interesting journey. I think, in in my opinion, you know, just from following your work, from reading a few of your books, and I plan to read more. Um, But your journey initially, I think, was was started to uh, kind of started documenting it in springtime for Snowflakes. I think from 2018, we kind of talked about your experiences and maybe a little bit of your political awakening, um, being at NYU or you know just talking about some of the things that had happened to you uh, mm-hmm. that essentially you were victimized intellectually um was that time for you essentially a jumping off point for you um as far as a political transformation or awakening or or maybe would you characterize that differently coming out of the ac- academia
1: uh there was a lot of transformations going on uh, political transformation indeed um uh, uh, a very big world view shift a gestalt shift in my world view and uh simultaneously some personal issues uh with uh my ex-girlfriend and uh there was uh, there was a lot happening at the same time and uh some simultaneously my son was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer so there was a lot going on and uh i was, you know, as you probably know, I was pretty far left. I was a Marxist. And, uh, so, you know, I had a whole shift on that and, uh, I've now become, you know, militantly anti-communist and anti-socialist, uh, and pro-liberty, pro-free, you know, free market and, uh, uh, pro-individual rights. And, uh, that's basically been my crusade. And, uh, Part of it has involved now, uh, it's, uh, shifted to somewhat, uh, a different register and to the extent that now I, uh, I also engage in what I call power elite analysis and, uh, looking at these elites that, um, I think are subversive. So I call them subversive elites. So I've gone from, uh, critiquing social justice and, um, uh, what then became wokeness. And then also, I tracked that into uh, the treatment of big tech and uh, big, what I call big Digital in my book, Google Archipelago. And then uh, sort of put a synopsis of a bunch of essays together in Beyond Woke. And then uh, recently before you know before this latest book, the Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, I wrote a novel called Thought Criminal. So all these all these books are kind of like a new stage in my career, beginning with uh, Springtime for Snowflakes and beginning with the transformations that happened around then.
0: Yeah, and I, I know that you had uh, written or at least experienced, certainly, this kind of new moral order, um, almost like a new left-wing puritanicalism mm-hmm. in academia. Um, mm mm-hmm. And I know certain people have talked about, you know, is this is this kind of uh, a brand new revolution, all this wokeness, all this social justice stuff, certainly in the academy. I know Oren Orin, Orin McIntyre has said that this is not a new revolution that we're seeing. It's the culmination of an old revolution. Uh, do you agree with those sentiments? Mm-hmm. Um, or is that just a different way of kind of saying the same thing?
1: Uh, it, it, there's uh, elements of the old in it in the social justice creed that come from, uh, you know, socialism, really. And uh, social justice is a phrase that's been used many times by different groups. Uh, I won't go into the whole history of social justice all the way back to the 19th century, but um, it, uh, it, in, it, it incorporates those uh, ideas of economic justice that John Rawls, wrote about, but then it incorporates new elements that come from uh, the postmodern theory, postmodernism, and also from Soviet and Chinese uh, disciplinary mechanisms that are coming out of the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the Stalinist purges and the red terror and the gray terror, these kinds of uh, techniques of uh, auto critique or self-criticism and uh, struggle sessions, which are right. uh, Sino-communist and uh, Russo-communist. Yes. Uh, so there's all of those elements. That's what I talk about in, uh, in Springtime for Snowflakes. Where does this come from? And what are the elements that, uh, that are converged to create all this? Uh, it's old in the sense that uh, this is the left doing leftism uh, and the left's going to left. And uh, they're going to continue to take up the mantle, even if and after the failures of socialism and communism in uh, in the Soviet union, uh, not China. Yeah. Well, China's failed too, but they shifted gears. Uh, And, uh, elsewhere and uh, still using different vocabulary and different uh, ways of describing the same sort of objectives uh, and so I, I think I've documented all that and you know we could talk about either of the particulars if you want or go further.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think it's fascinating that you, um, you referenced at least kind of the the Maoist influence cultural revolution in, in China. In many ways, I look back to um, May, June and the summer of 2020, the summer of hate. And, you know, with all those struggle sessions, although I didn't see too many people calling them such, you know, uh, white people kneeling and apologizing for this or that and, you know, prostrating themselves. Was that, in your opinion, was that planned was that orchestrated or was this just an example of convergent evolution on on the left wing is this always where it where it leads or were there kind of puppet masters who were forcing these cultural revolution kinds of techniques upon us you know and then you had useful idiots who were only so willing to comply
1: yeah these techniques that came out of uh, the soviet uh, and the chinese uh yeah and uh really also you know Italian Marxism with uh, Antonio Gramsci and his notion of cultural hegemony and uh, overtaking the institutions uh, rather than taking on a socialist revolution straight ahead, rather than trying to overthrow capitalism immediately. First, attempting to overthrow the ideological uh, support for capitalism. And uh, that's been underway for really, I would say, a hundred years, really. Uh, so it's not only Gromsky and the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, uh, it's also, uh, well, those are major players there that, that uh, basically inaugurate this uh, this new kind of cultural revolution in, uh, in taking over these, infiltrating and taking over all these institutions, which we've seen has been uh, almost, I say recently, I've said it's totally complete. Uh, this is complete, successful for them, revolution, <coughs> cultural revolution. So then uh, they've begun to doing the economic dismantling that uh, piece by piece and incrementally that's, that's underway now. And the postmodern elements are basically the epistemological subjectivism and uh, relativism uh, that accompanies all this and works for totalitarian ends. I've talked about why the, they work towards totalitarian ends. It's because uh, when you eradicate the objective criteria for knowledge, then it depends on having power, basically knowledge as uh, whatever people with power say it is. And likewise, this lends itself to totalitarianism. And th- this is why I call the, uh, the woke movement its woke totalitarianism.
0: So, Michael, regarding this new woke totalitarianism um, that has really taken root in the past few years or past decades... Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Kind of flesh it out for me. Um, what does this woke totalitarianism look like, and what is it maybe modeled after in terms of previous movements that we've seen?
1: Well, what it does is um, is it mobilizes and uh, weaponizes so-called fragility or uh, of of the so-called subordinated or subaltern or any number of terms that that are used to to describe uh, these so-called underdogs. And it weaponizes that fragility and uses it against others to police their speech. So that speech is now deemed dangerous to people, and uh, therefore it can be shut down based on the so-called fragile nature of these uh, subaltern others, if you will. And so what it is is a really it's a totalitarian regime to silence and uh, disappear uh, anybody that uh, violates a code uh, regarding what can be said and what can't be said because it supposedly injures other people. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, the, the basic premise here is that you don't have a, a right of free speech to express anything that might endanger other people, or even insult them, or that might uh, that they may not want to hear. Uh, so, likewise, this is a way of abrogating our rights to speech, and uh, it looks like uh, it, it looks like what it does on Twitter, what it does on. Facebook, what it does all over the web. Uh, It's just a means of uh, silencing uh, the critics or the uh, really any uh, dissident from the woke regime. Uh, And so uh, there's not really that much more to say about it except that, well, it has uh, some, of course, it borrows from Uh, previous regimes like the Maoist uh, uh, cultural revolution and uh, their struggle sessions and uh, uh, auto-critique or uh, self-criticism regimes. And uh, it uh, mobilizes those in in a new digital realm largely, but otherwise also in the so-called meat world, uh, anywhere really. And we're seeing it used to disappear and and, uh, get professors fired from academia uh, for any statements that insult or denigrate supposedly these groups. And uh, so these groups are used as means of bludgeoning people over the head, really. Uh, They're just weapons. Uh, They're not really concerned about the welfare of these people because when it comes down to it, they would slap these people down as well if indeed they violated the woke
0: precepts and creed. And so a lot of these students, and I'm not sure if you had seen this in your students, but it's amazing to me almost this Maoist or cultural revolution kind of nature of what we've seen here certainly since 2020 and even before that. But a lot of these students who end up imbibing this, let's call it leftism, They almost become useful idiots and they become some of the most vicious persecutors of the bourgeois or of the traditional or of the unwoke. Do you first of all, do you agree with that statement? And is it something you had seen yourself in in your years as a professor?
1: Yeah, they get mobilized as uh, useful idiots because uh, they don't recognize the real uh, objectives of this of this creed, which is to destroy the sense, uh, to destroy the contingent of the majority, basically, largely a white majority. But the, the middle middling ranks of society are, are persecuted with this woke ideology. And the, the idea is to, you know, if we can figure their rights as privilege, then indeed we can uh, take these rights away. I didn't see this with students at all in my teaching at NYU or or otherwise. This was really propagated through faculty and administrators. Um, They're the ones that are the watchdogs for this. Students were not, in my experience, too invested in undertaking this, at least at the, the students that I was teaching. Uh, basically, I, I didn't give into or play any party to uh, the kinds of uh, concerns that would really ri- ri- rise to the occasion uh, on these issues. For example, I, I just didn't treat such issues as, you know, the triumvirate of race, class, and gender as major issues uh, in my teaching unless you know it was endemic uh, or intrinsic to a text that we were studying it wasn't always imposing on this uh, text these issues like they do now where everything is read this way they impose these kinds of readings on everything and then it encourages students to start thinking along these lines and and it eventually it, it starts to envelop all of their thoughts uh, such that they don't have any other ways of Lit, even thinking so this is what happens it's a an indoctrination process and my classes were taught almost as anti-indoctrination uh sessions
0: so in your in your opinion is the left intrinsically or necessarily marxist and i know marxist is a very broad term and i understand that certainly academically but is it nowadays really post-marxist and, and i know even 150 years ago there were or maybe more. I guess there were folks like Bakunin or Proudhon. Some of them, maybe some of mm-hmm. them, um, not all of them, would even have considered Marx maybe uh, reactionary. That's how far left some of them are. Mm-hmm. But broadly speaking, in your opinion, is the left necessarily Marxist? I mean, I think what we've been talking about and a lot of your work is obviously discussing this weird post-Marxist, almost postmodern element to. What we might broadly lump mm-hmm. in as the left. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, there's there's been a, 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 a you know there's been a lot of transmutations of the left since Orthodox Marxism came forth, uh, and uh, it's it's had a lot of permutations from championing the working class or the proletariat against the capitalist class, and then. With uh, the new left and uh, neo-Marxism, beginning with the Frankfurt School and then uh, also becoming a hallmark of Maoism, uh, there becomes this new emphasis on uh, basically identity and consciousness. So uh, there's a a new champion, a, a new protagonist for the left or a new set of protagonists. Uh, whereas it had been the working class when when they failed to materialize as the revolutionary force in history that Marx had uh, claimed they would be, uh, the new left began seeking other protagonists, and uh, they looked for it in uh, feminism and environmentalism, and in uh, and most recently in um, uh, LGBTQIA plus uh, plus. Uh, new victims, new new underdogs. And that brings me to the main uh, theme of leftism. It's not so much that it it has to be Marxist, but it it has the same ethos, which is what I call underdogism. Uh, And that is it always seeks to find these underdogs and to use them as bludgeons, basically, to bully and destroy uh, the group in question which is the privileged in this case Uh, the privileged must be vanquished and they use these so-called underdogs as a means to do so so the common theme that runs through leftism all the way from marxism through transgenderism is underdogism that is finding these subaltern or subordinated or oppressed groups and uh championing them against another class usually privileged or previously under marxism the bourgeoisie uh so there's certainly some continuity on the left despite all of these changes uh that came about with identity politics and postmodern theory and uh, neo-marxism before that so yes um There's continuity, but there's certainly a lot of shifts, and they share with Marxism this underlying ethos of underdogism.
0: Right. And as I talk to you, of course, I'm coming from California. A lot of times this podcast focuses on California specific um, elements and themes. But um, here we have a very strange milieu, or very strange uh, stew, if you will, of kind of leftist, you know, kind of left liberal policies uh soft authoritarianism in some cases hard authoritarianism and where the rubber meets the road in in some western quote liberal democracies um (laughs) democracy you know in in scare quotes but where the rubber actually meets the road it's strange because what we've inherited now is such an amalgamation or hodgepodge of different left liberal neoliberal and then some i guess cultural marxist and leftist ideas we're, we're in a very strange place, I think. Um, you know, I'm sure you've mm-hmm. been to San Francisco maybe or LA in recent years and have seen oh, yeah. the drug use, the, the people slumped over in the fentanyl crawl, the, the defecation famously in San Francisco, the homeless encampments. And I've got I've to look at our so-called left-wing leaders, as, as people call them popularly. They're not really leftists, right? They're some kind of left liberal, neoliberal authoritarianism or, or authoritarians. And I've got to wonder, is this the goal? Like, there's never any kind of looking in the mirror. There's never any rear view mirror uh, with some of these left liberal politicians. And it's incredible how the so-called left is always able to escape uh, kind of the consequences of its own broad group of policies.
1: Its policies are meant to perpetuate the conditions that are then used to justify itself so they must create and maintain these uh, these groups these underdog groups these subordinated or oppressed people so that mm-hmm. they can then continue with their policies of supposedly benefiting them yeah. uh, so they have to produce that's why you find in the most left-leaning, parts of the country, the worst crises of poverty and homelessness and drug abuse and uh, uh, drug, uh, uh, drug, drug, drugged homeless people basically encouraged to undertake their drug use by needle programs and hospices and all kinds of uh, means by which they encourage actually the very behavior. That's leading to the problem. So this is what leftism does. It has to keep maintain these these groups. It has to maintain this uh, this other this this these groups of others who who then are used as a rationale for their own uh, programs. It's it's unbelievable yep. that they get away with it and that. <clears throat> people could live in LA or San Francisco, which I have been in recently and uh, okay. continue to vote for the people that they do despite the results of their programs and their, their, their politics. It's, it's stunning, but they, they just, they buy into this bleeding heart leftism. Uh, but the thing is, they're just using these politicians, just use these contingents as a, as a vehicle uh, for uh, perpetuating their own schemes which are statist so what what do the politicians get out of that it? it gets it accrues power to the state and gives these politicos more more power uh, more more funds to to, to ri- distribute more programs to perpetrate uh, and more. Authority and authoritarianism over the population like and recently I think it was in LA the new mayor of LA just gave herself power to uh, rescind the property rights of property owners Mm. under cases of emergency where the homeless are concerned so this is just
0: unbelievably authoritarian and I think they're going to push it as far as they can until they actually get pushback um, because the rules, the laws as written on paper are, you know, they only mean as much as uh, our willingness to enforce them, essentially.
1: Absolutely. And uh, property rights are essential to a free society. And uh, they're pushing various uh, communistic schemes through various legislation. And, uh, you know, basically communism... Gives great power to the to the ruling political ca- class, absolutely, and 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 robs it of the citizenry, and that's what they're up to. And they also are perpetrating what I what has been called anarcho tyranny. Yes, and that is they let all kinds of criminal behavior go on to to ravage the communities and reduce them to a kind of primitive anarchy on the streets, while they then harass and uh, tax to death and and attack uh, basically any middle or upper middle class people, but mostly the middling class, uh, and reduce their property holdings, reduce their rights, and uh, effectively subject them to this anarchy on the street of criminals running rampant. Absolutely. And so it's a it's a strange amalgam of anarchy and authoritarianism at the same time. Anarcho-tyranny, I think best describes it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um and and I know it's it's really interesting you go back and read some of that uh, Sam Francis in that essay. It's a fascinating mm-hmm. essay. I know he's a very polarizing figure. Um but that, is, that really is, I think, a very apt way to describe it, Michael. Um, what we went through our little cultural revolution of, of 2020 in the summer of George, watching mothers in Idaho literally get arrested on playgrounds, you know, when they were just there exercising their basic rights as a human, as a parent, um, watching them peacefully get arrested while, you know, left-wing groups were terrorizing, robbing, beating, and killing with impunity in... All of our nation's large cities, virtually. Yeah. Yeah. That, Absolutely. That was the tale of 2020. Um, let me shift gears a little bit, because um, I wanted to devote uh, a few minutes, a little bit of time, certainly to some of your your other work and great writings on, and I'll broadly lump it in as kind of the ESG, the great Great Reset Movement. I know the World mm-hmm. Economic Forum is a piece of that, and there are certainly different, I know there are different factions within this broad movement. But um, with ESG scores and how do those fit into the Great Reset, broadly speaking, and I'll, I'll give you the floor here, where are we headed with this moving into the future? You, you know, I know there's been some pushback on this Great Reset idea or the ESG mm-hmm. investing. You know, now I think companies are pulling back. Where do you think we sit now and into the next two, three, four years uh, with this broad movement?
1: Yeah, I mean, the ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Index, is a way of circumventing uh, all procedural, you know, so-called democratic processes and running a backdoor, uh, you know, a backdoor uh, economic intervention uh, to, um, of course, uh, trammel and utterly uh, control all production and industry and business altogether. And it's uh, forming what I call a woke cartel, and that's a large cartel of of those who abide. And then the aim is to starve off the non-woke from all capital investment. That's clearly what's going on. And so it's a monopoly scheme. Uh, It's a shared monopoly scheme on the part of these woke cartel members led by, at the top, well, at the top of the financial pyramid, as far as we know, by people like Larry Fink and uh, uh, other, uh, le- other CEOs of these groups. Although I think, uh, I think Vanguard is pulling back a little bit from the ESG. Uh, and there's been a lot of pushback by governors uh, in the United States. And uh, I think uh, perhaps there'll be some legislative pushback at the national level. Because uh, they could, they could bring this up into an antitrust legislation. Uh, it's possible, but you know, probably not very easy to do. Um, I think the ESG is going to. It's it's facing some. Thankfully, it's facing some serious resistance now. And, yes. Uh, but left left on it to its own devices, it would it would uh, um, utterly destroy the economy uh, not only adding tremendous expense to all of production and consumption and distribution and so on and so forth, but basically gutting the industrial capacities of the West um, while bribing the third world through wealth transfers, basically not to develop. Uh, Basically this is what the UN does uh, vis-a-vis and uh, in, conjunction with the world economic forum now is to effectively bribe the third world through these forced or, uh, through these recommended wealth transfers, which Biden has already, uh, you know, committed funds to, to paying off these. So, uh, these, um, you know, developing nations for the so-called damages of climate change, uh, so this is a an international socialist, uh, an international socialist movement. But I have to I have to caveat that by saying that it leads to actually existing socialism, which is what mm-hmm. socialism always becomes, which is uh, some sort of ruling oligarchy with control over all resources and production at the top and a kind of subsisting app actually existing socialism on the ground where you have this leveling of the population into economic equality, uh, which economic equality means completely reduced standards of living and pr- reduced prospects and lack of social uh, and economic mobility and, uh, a complete, uh, you know, neo-feudalistic setup. Um, But they're using climate change as the pretext for undertaking Mm -hmm. this. And it's nothing but a pretext. Uh, There's no basis uh, for it. And, uh, you know, I think that we're going to be in for a battle with this. Uh, They'll sneak it around anything they can get it into, this ESG. And the states are starting to push back, saying we're not investing our pension funds in this esg inflected nonsense because this is not uh this is not geared toward the best uh you know uh, output this is not geared towards uh, shareholders uh interests at all right Uh, so yeah we're going to see some uh, basic battling over this and i think it's necessary to put the question of climate change on the table Uh, the so-called science of climate change must be adjudicated publicly by somebody significant. Uh, It's not going to be Elon Musk because his EVs are kind of hinging on the whole narrative. Um, And it it won't be, you know, I don't know who it will be, but it has to be somebody major. And then, of course, we need uh, our public intellectuals to finally... uh, declare this the hoax that it is, and uh, to undermine the scientific pretext under which this is being conducted.
0: Absolutely. And I agree, it has to be um, someone prominent or a group of prominent folks. Yeah, Elon Musk, I appreciate what he's doing with Twitter. I won't go so far as to call him controlled opposition. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's been on the vanguard of pushing a lot of this environmental stuff um, that has led to some of these awful... um, well, it's led to some of these awful policies. And of course, he's been on the receiving end of huge and generous taxpayer subsidies as well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we've Big got cap. to think about, you know, does he have entirely pure motives and um, who who does he owe? Uh, that sort of thing. Um, right. I was going to ask you too, and, and this, this plays right off of what you were just talking about. You know, traditionally, those on the so-called right and, and conservatives here in the U.S., have always railed against the creeping socialism and of course i think there was a big element to that you know 80 years ago 70 years ago coming out of the new deal there were all the works progress administration the alphabet soup agencies which were kind of a meld i think of socialistic you know policies many of which inspired stalin or were inspired by stalin back and forth mm-hmm. um but I think, and it sounds like your work is uncovering this more and more and fleshing it out, but in the United States now, it's seeming to me that we don't just have a big, quote, socialist bogeyman. It's more of this corporatism, you know, or an an economic element of fascism that we absolutely strongly have. And I think the Twitter files, tell me what you think about this, but, you know, we've been seeing the Twitter files dumps over the past two weeks, and they seem to just be strong evidence showing that, well, The federal government, it might not own the means of production. It might not actually own Twitter or Facebook, but essentially they own Mark Zuckerberg or they own Jack Dorsey, right? Yes. And that's very, it seems very fascistic to me where all can be funneled through the state for everything for the state. The corporations work for the state. The oligarchs work for the state. Um, it, how do you see that?
1: Um, yeah, that's true. I think, and I call it corporate socialism. It's also economic fascism. Yeah. Uh, it's everything for the state, everything, nothing outside the state, but it's also, it also benefits these corporations because they become uh, pr- preferred producers and preferred media outlets and preferred uh, social media outlets and uh, they gain, you know, effective, you uh, immunity from uh, particular legislative sanctions, but also they gain, uh, you know, essentially what they gain is de facto monopoly status. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, this is really why I call it corporate socialism. It's corporate oligarchs and the state in conjunction on top with a naturally existing socialism underneath. Yes. Uh, for the vast majority. And, uh, that this uh, there's an unholy alliance between these corporations and the and the state, big tech being the most significant purveyor uh, and the most important element of it because it's the communications and ideological apparatus of the whole regime. That's why big tech is has been leading the has been the leading edge. This is what I argued in Google Archipelago. They're the leading edge of this new. Uh, corporate socialist regime. Um, They control the message. They control the information. They control the ideology. They control the narratives. Uh, And so this breach at Twitter represents a shakeup in that uh, Googleplex, if you will. And, uh, you know, this is why you see the left freaking out hysterically about this, not just the minions, but also, you know, in the upper echelons in the, in the, in the, in the state, you know, the Biden administration, uh, all of the uh, state agents and agencies and so on, uh, they are losing perhaps control of one of their primary state apparatuses. Yes. Uh, and that's the, that's the reason there's this great deal of commotion and, Uh, histrionics with with reference to this.
0: Histrionics. I love that term because you might've seen, you probably don't read them. You might've seen some of these articles maybe flash across your phone or what have you. I've seen some from Vox, maybe Huffington Post, where they're freaking out, you know, like the article or, you know, the clickbait headline will be something like, why are all tech companies right wing now? And and I'm like, Uh just chuckling to myself, like, oh my gosh, you guys lose Twitter. And then all of a sudden the world is crashing down upon them. It's hilarious. Right. The whole,
1: yeah. The whole di- big digital complex has, has been leftist and totalitarian for, for, you know, for a long time. And likewise, they see this potential loss as, you know, everything turning right wing. It's just one outlet that has, uh, basically shaken the woke, uh, cartel up, um, and perhaps, you know, breaking, representing a break in the woke social media cartel regime. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're absurd that they would, uh, suggest that this is that the media, the social media is all right wing when the whole of media and all the social media, except for Twitter, I guess, to some extent, although I'm not completely convinced, uh, that it'll be, uh, a free speech platform entirely. Uh, uh, all of the uh, major networks and all of the major media are all leftist and totalitarian. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, one one slight breach in the chain, and they're calling it all right
0: wing. It's hilarious. It, it is. And so, what are they going to do? I mean, I guess you know it's an open question. We're going to find out. We're going to collect the data and kind of run this experiment, but. Um, yeah, how do they deal with this breach, as you called it? I, I like that that way of describing it. Uh, do they just totally all out attack Elon Musk? And we've seen a little bit of that happening. I mean, all of a sudden, are there going to be like reported crimes? Are they going to hashtag me too, Elon Musk? How are they going to deal with this um, this dissenter? I mean, are, are, do they abandon Twitter? Yeah, there'll be character
1: assassination uh, plots, yeah. and there'll be uh, other types of... Uh, Campaigns to discredit and destroy him, uh, but also what we're going to see is a doubling and tripling down on the on the part of these other uh, social media and information platforms—Google, Facebook, Instagram, etc. To to basically yeah. re, re, regroup and circle the wagons around their woke cartel, trying to isolate Twitter and perhaps discredit. Uh, discredit uh musk and effectively banish it uh as a as a tool uh, or they'll try to recuperate it it's possible they'll try to recuperate it but i don't see how they're going to when he has complete ownership without any shareholders yeah. so it becomes yeah. pretty hard to uh, control their policies from the outside although there's pressure groups okay and they're those include not only the ADL, but also the European Union and their Digital Services Act. They're going to try to impose uh, European digital uh, regulations on, on on all social media. Uh, and those are very, very narrow and strict. Uh, they outlaw hate speech and so-called disinformation. Uh, and that could be anything, as we know. Uh, so... Uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure put on twitter
0: yeah it seems like they're going to need to either kind of abandon it or destroy it i, I don't think they can let it exist as it is right now um, right and i i agree with you spot on about the so-called environmental movement of global warming slash climate change i think that has been you know there might be some true believers there uh maybe 30 40 years ago um i think I think the so-called modern left is masterful at co-opting these movements and absolutely putting them into the employment for their goals. And I think to that end, yes. also the COVID, COVID-19, COVID uh, all the authoritarianism and the tyranny that we've seen in the past two and a half to three years, I think they've been masterful with that as well. Because I go onto Instagram and anything that mentions COVID or injection or vaccine it gets a label instantly. I guess with AI or or some other technology, um, mm-hmm. is AI. that something? Yeah, yeah it's got to be AI, right? That's something that's already yeah. being used here in the United States, right? Identification of outlawed speech, dangerous speech, um, disapproved speech. Oh yeah, oh yeah, big time.
1: And you know, we saw we see that the FBI has been involved, uh, and of course, yes. the Department of Homeland Security has backdoor portals to Facebook and Instagram. And probably other, we'll probably find out. Also, effective portals to Twitter that were there and uh, that they used to screw down uh, speech that they didn't want, disruptive speech to the narrative about COVID. You know, if it weren't for catastrophes, the left would have nothing really. Yeah, um, they use catastrophism as a way to bring about their 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 agenda. So they need these catastrophes and they must not be violated uh, narratively,
0: narratively, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah, because we live in a country, as as, as you've noted before, as, as many other great authors have noted, where you can drive up to your parking lot at work and you're you're walking in checking the same iPhone that your boss has. Maybe you're driving the same vehicle that your boss has. You wear in yeah. the same clothes. You both have air conditioning. It's very hard, I think to upset or to overturn, you know, to create chaos in a society like that, unless you have these manufactured crises, I I think, in my opinion. I I would agree. Absolutely, absolutely. With uh,
1: the free market, and I I won't call it capitalism, because that's been an epithet since its inception, that term. Uh, With the free market and, uh, you know, uh, the kinds of uh, free enterprise that has spurred economic growth, in the United States and elsewhere, but here, let's, let's, stick to here. Uh, there becomes really no economic pretext for overthrowing it, uh, except for the keeping of certain welfare case, you know, a welfare state that keeps a certain class of people in their thrall and keeps them poor and keeps them relatively poor. That is compared to others. Um, uh, they, they don't really have the economic, um, uh, lever that they had uh you know early in the 20th century yes yeah. so they have to use these other things um to control and strip the population of wealth
0: yeah and i think when you go back and and i'm sure you're you're much much more um deeply read in a lot of these texts but even reading you know just um communist manifesto or das kapital you know it, it's just also dated like owning the means of production, you know, as if everything's made in a factory. It's so 1860 or 1850, right? Right. Nowadays, it's like everyone jumps online. Like I've started up this new podcast, you know, what are the means of production? You know, I'm using the Riverside software, for example, people start websites. They start businesses in their own homes, selling stuff that their kids make crafts. So it's hilarious when I, I go back and I read these primary, very basic texts of Marxism, And everything is like worker and factory and smokestacks. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is so historically just dated. It's just tired, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, the premise of Marxism really was that there'd be this continual immiseration of the working class, that they would be driven to more and more dire poverty and that really all they would get out of work would be the means of subsistence and nothing else. Yes. And they would be tied and tethered to the factory and have no way out. And they would be reduced to the lowest possible wage that, that could be paid. And all of this was proven to be false. It's all been historically, empirically proven to be complete bunk. Nothing
0: of the sort ever happened. And therefore, they have to try other means. Yes, absolutely. Um, quickly, before we go, one, one last topic here, uh, kind of related, but central bank digital currencies. Mm-hmm. What do we need to, you know, I think a lot of us are, are loosely um, aware that this could be coming down the pike. You know, the Fed's got to be cooperating with the, the federal government um, to kind of look at this. I think they're yeah. aware of it. I think they right. want to employ it. Um, right. But is this something that is going to be also using private industry, private companies, as it seems like always tyranny comes to the U.S. that way? Um or what should we be looking out for? And and what do you see coming in the next few years on this front here in the US?
1: Well, uh, CBDCs, but also digital identity, uh, which they need in order to run the CBDC. So that'll come through corporations, largely. Uh, They're encouraging, uh, basically, carbon footprint tracking through uh, attachments to credit cards and other uh, digital identity features that are starting to be rolled out, uh, and CBDCs will be coming out of the Fed uh, if it comes out. And or, you know, and likewise, you know, of course, that means uh, total uh, state subversion, uh, sub, uh, uh, surveillance over uh, spending, savings, and debt, and that means complete control uh, of all. Uh, transactions mostly, you know, all transactions that are using CBDC, and they may make other types of transactions uh, verboten or outlawed. So it, it is a very significant threat. It's, it's the closing of the digital gulag circle, if you will. If these, if these two elements come into play, uh, digital identity and CBDC, you're going to be basically, there'll be no way out of the digital gulag, really. And uh, they'll. This will make it impossible to be a dissident of any kind. You'll be yeah. destroyed. Uh, it'll. Right. It'll make. It's a, at some point, the digital gulag is going to turn into more than just a virtual one, and it's already for many people because once you're banned that way, it, it has real-world implications. But this would really close the circle on that. And likewise, I've suggested that we absolutely reject and refuse these technologies, uh, CBDC and digital identity and other elements of the fourth industrial revolution, as it's called.
0: Yeah. And I think um, to put this into effect, it seems to me, my analysis is that they're going to have to crack down on mainstream cryptocurrencies. I don't want them to. Oh, yeah. I support the freedom. I support individual um, transactions. You know, There's my disclaimer, of course. But The way I see it, and and I don't know your thoughts on this, they're going to have to outlaw Bitcoin. That could just come down. I could see that in the next uh, Biden term, God forbid. That could be in the next four years.
1: Yeah, I mean, this could be a function of uh, this FTX failure. And, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that they've let these uh, uh, certain unsavory players, uh, like, you know, Sam Banks Bank. fraud, or whatever Freed. you want to call yeah. Banksman fraud, I call them. Yeah, uh, right. That they let this stuff go out of control in order to justify and have a rationale and a pretext for controlling, if not outlawing, uh, uh, you know, any kind of uh, digital currency that's not CBDC. Uh, right. So. Yeah, they're going to use this to regulate it out of existence or to regulate it into the CBDC,
0: something like that. Well, and that's fascinating. I don't know if this is where you were going, but I kind of just tinfoil had it out um, just a second ago. But is there some chance that this whole thing was orchestrated intentionally? Or is, is that what you were kind of intimating that this thing? I mean, it's he's just so tied so up happens. with the left. Could they have done this on purpose, crashed it? And then so they could say, hey, look, this crisis. Now we have to come in and regulate it. We have to do it for you, the people. We have to protect you.
1: Yeah, I mean, this comes back to the same question that I face all the time. Uh, if they didn't engineer it, they certainly are, uh, are going to use it to their benefit. So they may have let it yeah. happen on purpose so that then they right. could uh, use it as a pretext for this kind of draconian legislation that uh, I think is on the, on. Uh, you know, it was forecast in Biden's uh, uh, executive order, the same one in which he advanced the idea that we you know, really should get into central bank digital currency. Uh, so yeah, this, yes. this serves as a perfect case uh, scenario that they could use for this purpose. And uh, whether, whether they, you know, I don't know that it's engineered. I think this guy, fraud, bankman fraud is sitting in jail right now. So, uh, yeah. if he, if they did engineer it, he's certainly looks to be a patsy at this point. He's a patsy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess in the meantime, uh, what we can do is, is buy gold, silver, maybe some platinum, um, take care of your finances and get out of debt. You know, I, I, I don't have any.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Even though there is precedent in the United States for confiscating gold that's right. and forcing people to trade it in for whatever. Yeah uh, whatever currency they want. So
0: happened under FDR, uh, right? They confiscated a bunch yep. of the gold, I believe they, they confiscated a lot of yeah. gold, all that they could get. Yeah. Uh, so this is not unheard of. Well, the good news at least is that I lost a lot of my gold on fishing trips. So they're in the bottom of lakes and whatnot. It's very unfortunate, but
1: <laughs> very yeah, good. Yeah.
0: Very good. Uh, well, that's where a lot of it should remain until deep needed. underwater at the bottom of a lake. Um, Michael exactly. I, I really appreciate you making the time um, to talk about these you know this smattering of ideas um, really enjoy reading your work over at Mises and then also I think at your website right michaelrechtenwald.com
1: right that's where I keep everything even the Mises articles and other articles that I write and all of my books are available through my website you can order directly from me and uh, avoid uh, Amazon if you wish and I'll send sign copies out.
0: Very good. Love that. So go visit michaelrechtenwald.com and uh, make sure to check out and and purchase some of Michael's books. Absolutely. Um, I've read a few of them and I plan to read more. Um, But Michael, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it today and uh, wish you happy holidays.
1: You too. Happy holidays to you and thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much.
1: This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.